0: book has a unique structure. The chapters are a series of individual vignettes. You begin with Joan Rivers. You tell how you're waiting in front of the Richard Rogers Theater on 46th Street in New York City for Joan Rivers to see a performance of Romeo and Juliet featuring Orlando Bloom. And that's just the first story you share. <laughs> <laughs> and it sets the momentum for the rest of the book. One riveting anecdote after another. Reading this book, feels as if I was sitting across the table from you and you're sharing stories as they come to you. Um, why did you decide to write a memoir and not an autobiography?
1: Yeah, well, I tried various things. I, I started this book, I, I blush to say, uh, 14 years ago. <laughs> I stopped occasionally, you know, and, and wrote about six plays in between. But uh, yeah, no, it's been a long project. and I didn't really know what I was going to do other than I thought I had an interesting story to tell. And Storytelling is kind of my my addiction. Everything I do is about telling a story. When I write a play, it's it's a linear thing. When I sing a song, it's telling a story. A big challenge, of course, with this book was to take all these these stories that I've told so many times over the years, and you know I'd kind of boiled them down to one-liners, and so uh, I had to really try to get back into this mindset of memory, or you know, what was I really feeling at these moments, a little more insight into the other people that I was dealing with, and particularly certain sections of the book, like how I got my big break doing this play in the East Village, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, I had told that story just to death, not even written a novel in the, in the mid 90s, very much based on that experience. So that was hard to go back and really tell the story. But yeah, the structure, um, well, I I get a little antsy when I read autobiographies, and you have to go through, oh, you know, them talking about their grandparents' lives and their parents' lives and the long childhood until you get to the sexy stuff. You know, I'd kind of like to shake it up a bit, but there is a sort of deceptive um, chronological order to it. Uh, I think a good example is um, that when I'm talking about... um, how you know I was raised by my aunt in New York City, and she started taking me to Broadway shows when I was, I guess, nine years old. And among the first shows we saw was Hello, Dolly, with Carol Channing. And then that leads me off on a tangent about when I shared a dressing room with Carol Channing in the in the nineties. But then I go back to where I left off. Yeah.
0: And one of the the more sad stories that you tell us about how you lost your mom when you were about seven years old, um, very suddenly from a heart attack. You write how that loss shaped your life to this day and how you respond to tragedies, but also to the successes in your life where you say, okay, what's next?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've talked over the years to, you know, numerous people who've lost a parent during their childhood. And it really does seem to be a universal thing that is really one of the central episodes of your life. And, And it does shape so much that comes afterwards. It's really a primal thing. And um, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in feeling that way. And I, I guess always searching, like seeing myself get such crushes on uh, these certain very intelligent, bigger than life women, you know. Mistress, I will never betray you. <laughs> it's terrible, really. It makes you very vulnerable. Any woman who, you know, whispers in my ear, you know, I adore you. Yes, mistress. <laughs> Who do you want murdered?
0: <laughs> so you're terrible. always looking for that, that strong mother figure to, yes, to be I there am. for I, you.
1: Yeah, I start sniffing around all these older actresses, trying to hope they'll be the one, you know. I was lucky with Joan Rivers, and she, she fit the bill for, and was so kind to me.
0: One of the things that I really like is the, the series of photos that you have included in the book, oh, which was fantastic. They were so much fun to peruse. And one of those photos shows you with three iconic actresses. <laughs> you tell the story behind that photo in the chapter called The MGM Girls. Could you share that with us? Can you read it? Or do you just want to tell oh, us? I'll no, no,
1: just, just tell it. Yeah, I, I, for someone who's my, you know, my career is so much based on plays that evoke, you know, movies from from the golden age. I've I, been fortunate to to met a lot of these these women and uh oh this is i guess in the um early 90s or something like that friend of mine worked for turner home video there was a big video convention in las vegas and so he was able to somehow you know bring me out there and uh be a fly on the wall and the first uh night we were there in las vegas at the desert inn it was a cocktail party for these great stars who were being very nice and helping promote their old movies being released on home video. So it was Ann Miller, Debbie Reynolds, June Allison, and Esther Williams. And each one of them got in front of the podium and Ann Miller and June Allison and Debbie Reynolds were all just, oh, you know, MGM was our family and we just love supporting them. And then Esther Williams got up there and very, very kind of tough. And she said, of course, I don't see a penny out of any of this. But I guess if you can't kill Ted Turner, you might as well join him. <laughs> oh boy, was that an embarrassing moment! <laughs> so then so we were uh, all supposed to go to one of the restaurants for dinner. You know, I was a, at the elevator with uh, Debbie and Annie, as they called her Annie and and, and Junie. And I said, "Oh, where, where's Esther? Shouldn't we wait for Esther?" And and all three ladies just gave me this glare. That, oh, "Okay, okay." And we got time to the restaurant. They explained. We just loved our years at MGM, and they took such great care of us. And Esther just she's so bitter and sour. Anyway, so we were at dinner, and it was really interesting seeing how each of these ladies really was kind of like their screen persona. And, uh, and they were old-time friends; they adored each other. Ann Miller was kind of like a big Texas waitress, you know, and she was taking all of our orders. You know, what are, what are you going to have? Okay, and you're going to have like, the turkey and an open face sandwich. And June Allison was all sort of vague and dizzy and yet she knew exactly what she you know <laughs> what she was omitting, what dates she conveniently forgot. and then Debbie Reynolds was oh she was several women in one. she was such a consummate performer. Suddenly she put the napkin over her arm and she'd be the, the French sweater, you know and, and then she'd be Jaja Gabor or she'd be Marlon Brando but then she'd drop all that and she was just a very smart sharp showbiz lady. And so she had a lot of advice for all all the ladies, they all had memoirs coming out. And so she was explaining Which you know, June, what you got to do is, you know, you got to go to senior groups and nursing homes and Annie, you you need to be where when the truck drivers with the books, when they, you know, they first arrive, you got to be at the bookstore and make sure that you get your book. Oh, Oh, she, she knew all the angles. It was fascinating. Then of course, who walks in, but Esther. And she's with these two gorgeous big gay guys, and she's got her big mink coat, you know, draped over her shoulder. And all all the ladies are so embarrassed. Oh, 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 oh Esther, we we looked for you, we couldn't find you. And oh dear, you know, we're, we're so sorry. And and Esther, she just seemed like a really cool, you know, tough dame. And she just kind of gave them a look like you know, that she was onto all of them. And she sat down at her own table with these two gorgeous guys, swigging tequila, and I'm sure having a much better time. <laughs> it was fascinating. It was a whole weekend of that, actually. Oh
0: my goodness! Yeah.
1: No, I've been lucky. I, you know, I've spent a little time with uh, Clutta Colbert and and Claire Trevor, and, and then other people who are not in the book. Louise Reiner, they come to my shows because they were tributes to the Golden Age. Yeah.
0: And that kind of leads me into your inspiration. It was performers like the women of Hollywood's Golden Age that inspired you and your work, as you just said, and also actresses from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, like Lillian Russell and Sarah Bernhardt. And what was it about these performers that captured your imagination?
1: Well, um, as a very young kid, my aunt found in a thrift shop this um, big book called Great Stars of the American Stage. And uh, I was just riveted by this book which had fo- photos and little, a paragraph basically about who these people were. and. Uh, I was fascinated by the photos of these great actresses who, for the most part, uh, never did movies in some cases intentionally. They just didn't like Catherine Cornell. She was a great star of the stage and had this, you know, extraordinary career and just didn't want to do movies and uh, Eva Legallion and um, uh, Lynn Fontaine. And and somehow, even though, you know, I I was really into Betty Davis and Catherine Hepburn and Norma Shearer, there was something rather mysterious. About these great stage actresses who you could not see in movies. and and you know, I was a kid with a very vivid imagination. and so i could I could create in my head what their voices sounded like and what their performances in these plays were like just based on the photos I saw. So that that had its own appeal
0: and so your your work began to evolve into recreating how you imagined they would be, yeah.
1: And well, because also, for the most part, my career has been in on stage you know, I've done a, you know, a couple of movies, but most of my career is in the theater. So like if I'm going to do, um, let's say one point in 1989, I did a play called The Lady in Question, which was an homage to um, Hollywood sort of anti-Nazi war melodramas in the 40s. And I played a the world's most glamorous international concert pianist on tour in Bavaria. And I, you know, get mixed up in a plot to save this actress from a you know a nazi prison and all that and so in a certain sense i was evoking norma shearer and joan crawford in, in the movies they made but since we were doing it on stage and not on film it also seemed to me that i was actually in like one of these plays that, like lynn fontaine or catherine cornell might have done during during the early days of the war you know or, uh, like a lillian hellman play you know, it, it becomes as much homage to that as is to the, the film.
0: You fell in love with the theater and performing very early. You were, I believe you said you're eight years old, and you credit your father for introducing you to theater, mm-hmm. but you pair your gratitude with a grim reflection. You write, and I'm quoting from your book here, "'I can forgive my father's mm-hmm. failings, "'his foolishness, his lack of genuine interest in my welfare.'" I can forgive him everything because he gave me the theater. Why did theater, why does theater have such a deep value for you?
1: Oh, you know, I, I was just born with a very vivid imagination and and kind of a romantic sensibility. You know, I, I might be a good case for reincarnation. <laughs> perhaps I, I don't know, perhaps I really, I was some actress, you know, in, in the 19th century who, was sort of stif- stymied and stifled and and now it's something I was reincarnated as a as a man who could have the uh career that was denied her I don't know I'm you know I'm not really into that sort of thing but it's a nice notion uh yeah you know my father my father was just a lot of fun he was a lot of fun and if he was on right now with us boy you'd have a good time and so it, it was always a little difficult for me to see him as, as a villain. And you know, my my aunt felt he was actually a, a threat to our welfare mm-hmm. um, because of his irresponsibility. And you know, he was like he was like seventeen years old, always. You know, he was always just you know affectionate and never scolded us or never hit us. It's not like one of those fathers that you know was abusive. He he was a bit negligent, but whenever we were together, it was just always encouraging. You know, he was so stage-struck, he wanted to be an opera singer, you know, but he he didn't have the enormous talent that that requires. And it requires extraordinary discipline and drive, which he just did not have. But he just was so stage-struck when he would come to see me in a play, oh my gosh, you know, I would give him the tour backstage and he, I would see him just stand on the empty stage just in, inhaling just inhaling the air of the theater you know so i have great m- memories of him same time you know he was undependable basically is, is the thing and uh, i do think it's part of um, being an adult ultimately of dealing with your parents you you don't have to forgive i, I think forgiveness is asking too much particularly people who you know whose parents are, are abusive you know, you don't have to forgive them but i think you can try to understand them that's healthy. To me, that's growing up.
0: I was going to ask, as you get older, you begin to be able to see your parents in a different light and you can understand yeah, yeah. why they may have made certain choices. Yes. Me and my aunt,
1: who's really the, I guess it's really the greatest influence in my life. She, she in some ways she's the leading lady of the book. One of my goals in writing it was to try to present a, a three-dimensional portrait of her, not just kind of a idealized, romantic version of her which i could have done because you know she really saved me when she brought me to live with her in new york city when i was 14. but she was complicated you know and and she wasn't perfect she wasn't perfect and there were choices that she made emotional choices that i wish she, she hadn't I now mean, I, I wish that she hadn't tried to turn me against my father she felt that he really was a danger to my sisters and i And there were a number of years, maybe 10 years or so, where any mention of his name would provoke her. Like, literally, you'd say uh, something about Hitler. be like, well, your father's like Hitler. You know, and that wasn't good. That really wasn't good for me. And it affected me deeply for for many years. Ultimately, she was the most extraordinary parent. She was mother and father. And there are very few children, I think, can say that every choice their parent made for them was the right choice. And I can say that. And that's pretty amazing, you know, but really I mean, she she um got me from the earliest earliest age she was um kind of enraptured by my imagination and creativity.
0: we were talking about the many iconic women actresses and performers that have influenced you which of among them do you enjoy performing the most
1: Are these a- actresses
0: yes or which character type do you enjoy
1: uh, well i tend to be um i i tend to play great ladies who uh have a a sordid past (laughs) it seems that so many of my uh, my friend carl who directs so many of my plays jokes is always the scene in act two where i take the leading man and i sit him down and said let me tell you a little story and i reveal that even though i you know i've had this great career as a concert pianist i really been in vaudeville as barrel house gertie the kissing kitten of the keys our lady sylvia allington the, the british noblewoman i let me tell you a little story and tells us how, how she'd actually been a, you know, a carny dancer <laughs> you, know, and, you know i always had to start from one place and ended up somewhere else and i, I guess you know one could use some kind of facile psychology and say that there are versions of my aunt a bit who uh was a poor jewish girl from cincinnati from immigrant parents who who then got herself to New York in 1930 and reinvented herself as a mm-hmm. New York lady and then she didn't get married until she was 40 but then married an older man who had enough money to allow her just to um, take care of her, her sister's family.
0: So you love that the complexity of the character it's not yeah, just. I enjoy and I like
1: playing people who uh, start off the play you know with all sorts of wrong values and <laughs> selfishness and you know just impossible <laughs> and then over the course of the the melodrama they they become bitter people for it and you know, get the straight straightened out you don't see that too often nowadays i don't know whether it's a, a sign of feminism or something but i find so many writers and particularly it's, it's often male writers who are trying to keep up with changing times make every female character kind of one note a bit ambitious but New arc of emotion I, I like movies where you know where the woman's might start off vulnerable and and wrong-headed and you know but then uh gets it together yeah you know, from the beginning they, they just have to be empowered you know role models and and they just stay that way and and so it still ends up being the man's movie hmm. just the woman's not not as interesting as she used to be
0: and we talking about interesting plays vampire lesbians of Sodom. Uh. (laughs) Just a small anecdote, I used to hang out in the village in the 80s because I was in college around that time, and I would always pass under the marquee with the name (laughs) of your play on it, and it would always intrigue me because I've never seen those words assembled together before. Unfortunately, I never went to see the play, and I wish I had, but I just wanted to ask you, it was one of the first plays that gained momentum for you, and um, I always wondered... How did you come up with the story and the name?
1: i had had spent most of the previous decade just struggling, so I was a solo performer. And that was basically because to get a play put on with a cast of characters is complicated and expensive. And so I just wrote solo plays where I played all the parts and I booked myself in small um, non-profit theaters around the country and you know, never could totally earn a living doing it. So in between those engagements in Chicago or Washington D.C. or San Francisco, um, you know, I had every every crazy kind of job you could think of. I was a psychic portrait artist, bar mitzvahs and weddings, and you know, I just did everything. Um, but then, fortunately, I, in 1984, I went to see a, a friend of mine perform in this strange, tiny little after-hours bar art gallery in an area of New York that at that time was totally ungentrified, Alphabet City, way down on the Lower East Side. And I was so enraptured with the ambiance of this uh, place called Limbo Lounge. I mean, it was so decadent. And just thought we, I told my roommate, Ken, who, who was an aspiring director, um, I said, we got to do a play here. And I didn't want to do my solo act where I was just wearing, you know, black pants and a shirt. You know, I wanted to do something as outrageous as... The atmosphere and the audience. There was. they were all kind of punk, goth, gay, straight. But everybody had multiple piercings, and you know, I had to you know do something suitable. And I I'd, I'd read Interview with the Vampire, and I, I loved that book so much. You know, and I wanted to be in drag. I had played female characters in my act, although I wasn't in costume. And so I thought I'd like to be this glamorous vampire. And I I never really cared about the blood aspect. Of vampires, but the eternal life I, I thought was interesting. And I thought it'd be kind of fun. You know, I, well, first of all, it had to be something, a play that we could do for no money at all, at all. And the costumes had to be stuff that we could just kind of piece together from thrift shops. So originally it was just two scenes. It was just, so I thought, well, ancient Sodom would be good because we can both basically just be like in loincloths or G strings and tool, you know. Then the second scene, I thought, well, that could take place in Hollywood in the 20s because we could kind of improvise t- 20s costumes. And, and so I, I wrote this. I was working as an office temp and just as a receptionist in between phone calls. And I needed a, t- a title. And It seemed so unimportant because it wasn't like something I was going to do more than t- twice in this bar. My uh, good friend Ed from college, who is now an advertising person, I see, I gave him the idea of what it was about. And he just said, oh, vampire lesbians of Sodom. I said, that'll do. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm sorry, we're running out of time. we I think we've got about three minutes left. What does performing in drag offer you that you can't get when you perform as a man?
1: I'm okay when I play a male part. I'm, I'm fine, but I always think there are other actors who could do it better. But somehow when I play a female character and it brings out something that's very natural in me, uh, and rather profound in me. I have a greater expressiveness and freedom in me. And and uh, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a rather magical thing. And, I, and it comes from something deep within me. I used to be embarrassed and, and trying to make it clear, oh, this is just a professional thing, but I don't really completely understand it and, and actually don't feel the need to um, psychoanalyze it other than, um, I don't know, this the, the feminine within me is a place of authority and it's something very beautiful.